from John chapter 8, verses 38 to 59, and you can find it on page 582. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is your father, Jesus said to them. If you were Abraham's children, you would, do, you would be doing the works of Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, and I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They, have, they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Then he lies. He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, are we, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if, I, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our, our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, was, I am, sorry. Yeah, so they picked up some stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. We are looking at John chapter 8 today and uh, the end of it. Over the last few weeks, uh, we have look, been looking at different stories where people have increasingly been rejecting Jesus, turning away from him. If you remember, two weeks ago, we saw the account of the 5,000 that he had fed turning away from him and walking away when they were offended by his teaching on being the, the bread of life. And then last week, when Chad preached, we heard the division that arose in the crowds when Jesus proclaimed that he was the living water. Well, this week, this is the third time we see a response like that, and this is by far the most extreme of all of them. Uh, at the end of this, we see the crowds rising up with anger, as you heard Mia read to us. They, they picked up stones, and they were ready to kill Jesus. So what gives? What makes these people respond so emotionally? What makes these people respond so violently? Or maybe another way to ask that question, one that might connect a little better. It's the third Sunday of Lent. 
And Lent is traditionally a time for Christians to uh, reflect in the weeks leading up to Easter, a time to consider Christ's road to crucifixion, his own suffering, his own teachings, and, and what they had to say. Um, maybe a good question for us to ask as we look forward to that is, how do we respond to Christ's claims? How do we respond to what Jesus has to say? Because, honestly, this response is appropriate. This crowd, the way they respond to Jesus' teaching, I think is, is not necessarily bad. At least they have a response. I think whenever we hear what Jesus has to say, it should evoke some strong responses in us. There really is no room in the gospel for a calm and cool acknowledgement. When we hear what Jesus claims, either we need to be appalled, we need to rise up with anger, or we should be moved to tears with gratitude for what's been done. What Jesus says in this passage really is shocking. He's saying that there is a lot more that goes into our faith than just an apprehension of some facts. That the ultimate thing that decides uh, our ability to follow him, the ultimate thing that determines our ability to believe is spiritual. That there are spiritual realities at play. So I want us to study this passage this morning, and I want us to try to, to get at what Jesus is saying, and I want it to evoke a response in us. I want us to see exactly why Jesus' claims are so offensive here, because he is really saying uh, one thing. He's saying we all have a spiritual father. Every single person on earth has a spiritual father. And then secondly, there is clear evidence of who that is. There is one very specific way to tell who our spiritual father is. And then thirdly, he says, there's, there's only one hope for us to change spiritual fathers. So that's where we're going this morning. They, we all have a spiritual father. There is one thing that proves it, and there's only one, thing, way, one way to change it. Um, so let's look at that right now. We all have a spiritual father. Jesus does not pull punches here. This, this passage starts off with an argument. Jesus starts off by saying, even though we are all Jewish people here, we have different fathers. And immediately the crowd jumps in. They're offended by that. They say, no, we don't have different fathers. We have Abraham as our father. That's verse 39. And he responds by saying, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. He goes on to say, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do his desires. So it's 2016, Boston, and I think there are a lot of things in the way for us to understand this passage. There are a lot of obstacles for us to comprehend this. If you come here this morning, especially as a skeptic, this may sound like just silliness, right? Talking about the devil has been relegated to the territory of crazy people in our society. We, we just don't bring the devil up all that much. I was reminded of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, right? It's one of my favorite movies. I don't know if you've seen it, but George Clooney in that movie, he, he plays like a, a know-it-all idiot um, who has escaped from prison in the 1920s, and he's hanging out with these other two redneck guys, and, and there's a scene where one of the redneck guys is like, you know, I've always wondered, what does the devil look like? And uh, George Clooney says, well, there are all manner of lesser imps and demons, Pete. 
But the great Satan himself is red and scaly with a bifurcated tail, and he carries a hay fork, right? <laughs> That's the devil that we know, is it not? But that is not the devil that Jesus is talking about, okay? This is, that is not who Jesus is talking about here. So before we dismiss this outright, we need to consider what kind of world we live in. We need to think through some of the facts that Jesus is just presupposing as he lays this out. And the first of those facts is a foundational claim of Scripture. It's one of the, the basic facts we, uh, the Bible assumes. It assumes that there is a God. It assumes that this world is more than just a mere accident, but that the universe has a creator behind it, that the universe has not only a physical reality, but also a spiritual reality. And statistically, uh, surveys show that most people on earth still believe that, that thing at least. They still believe that there is a spiritual reality to our existence. Even as loud as kind of the, the new atheists get, and even as much as that message gets proclaimed, still the vast majority of people seem to believe that there is a spiritual side of life. I see it statistically. I also see that evidence just practically. I mean, anecdotally, I don't know. I, I'm not sure what your experience is, but I have tons of friends who would never be caught dead in a church, but they're happy to say they have a spiritual side. They, they're even, some of them, interested in connecting to that spiritual side, whatever it means, whether it's through meditating, whether it's through going out into the woods, whatever. They have a, a spiritual side that they acknowledge exists. And because of that, since most of us sense that there is this spiritual existence as well as a, a physical existence, we can start with that understanding. We, we need to understand that Jesus is trying to explain that spiritual reality to us. He's trying to shed some light on an area of, of life that we don't really know a ton about. And what he's saying is, not only do we all experience a spiritual reality. Not only are we kind of surrounded by this spiritual reality, but he says that reality is the most important part of who you are. That you are defined by a spiritual reality. Or as Tim Keller put it, he's a pastor in New York, he says the most important distinction in all of humanity, the thing that sets everyone apart, is not physical characteristics, but it's theological ones. According to this, uh, what Jesus is telling us is every person on earth, every single one of us, fits into either one of two categories. Either we are children of God or children of the devil. That is the main thing that separates one person from another in the kingdom of God. It's not their physical fraternity. It's not their their, who they descend from, it's not who their parents are, but it is their spiritual fraternity. It's who their spiritual parents are. And that emphasis especially comes out when you start to look at some of the racial language in this passage. Maybe we, we, are, we overlook it when we read it or it just doesn't quite connect, but there's a lot of race language in here, right? Jesus is speaking specifically to Jewish people in this passage. These are, it is an ethnic group of people um, and a group of people that he was a part of, right? Jesus was a Jew himself. 
He's talking about them. He's talking about their lineage. He's talking about their, their culture. And in the midst of that, he says, we come from different fathers. And so they object and they say, no, no, we have Abraham as our father. But the point he's trying to make and the point we're going to get at here is that Abraham is, of course, he is their, their ethnic father. They descended from Abraham. But he's saying that spiritually, Abraham is not their father. And they're, they're not following it. They're not picking up on this idea. And that's why in verse 38, they even accuse him of being a Samaritan, which is a different race of people. It's basically an ethnic slur, right? But here's the point he's trying to make. He's saying the main division is not your, your race. Our main division is, is not our cultural heritage, but it's the spiritual heritage that we claim. It's who our spiritual father is. And that's a theme we find all over scripture. We find it in Galatians, the famous passage, Galatians 3. It says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He says, if you, this is Paul speaking, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, don't misunderstand. I am not trying to, to, to make any claims about the importance of our, our personal ethnic and racial heritage. It's not that being a member of Christ's kingdoms means that, that those other distinctions don't matter or that they're unimportant to God in any way. But what, what Jesus is trying to tell us is having God as our father surpasses all of those other distinctions. That our spiritual paternity trumps our physical paternity. Or as Romans 9 puts it, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are children of Abraham, not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Right? There's more to it than that. And that's actually good news for us. It's good news for us because from our perspective, most of us being what the Bible would call Gentiles, people who aren't of Jewish descent, it means that there is no racial, there is no economic, there is no intellectual characteristics that give us the inside track to God. We all have earthly fathers, but it's our spiritual father that truly defines us. So how do we know who our father really is? That's the next question. Which side are you on? Are you a child of God or a child of the devil? Well, Jesus, let's just say, is, is being pretty bold here. Looking at this crowd and saying, you are children of the devil. That's offensive. Let's be honest. <laughs> that is an offensive thing to hear, no matter who you are. Uh, we had a, a guy who used to come to my school and stand in the middle of like a really popula populated area on campus. Maybe you had this at your school, too. It seems like this is a popular thing. But a guy who would just come and, and yell at people with his Bible, and everybody that walked by, he would yell, you're going to hell. You're a child of the devil. And I don't know what distinction he was using. I think it was mostly you know, what you were wearing, if you made it by him or not, without being you know, condemned in some way. I think you know, his personal fashion sense was the way he could tell if you were a child of the devil or not. But what really distinguishes people? How do you tell the difference? What is Jesus using here to determine that these people are what he would say are children of the devil? Well, let's look at, this, look at the passage again. Verse 39. 
He says, they say, Abraham is our father. And he says, if Abraham were your father, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. And then he goes on in verse at the end of that paragraph to say, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So pay attention to that. The key distinction here is not some behavior. It's not some action that these people are doing, but it's actually uh, about belief. Now, morality is certainly related, okay? It's not that morality exists entirely outside of this conversation. Later in 1 John, the same author is writing a letter to a church, and he says, this is the evidence of people who are children of God. He says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Right? So there is a moral element here. He says you can, you can get an idea of where people stand based on their behavior, but, but that's not the main thing here. Morality is not the main factor at play. In, in fact, he's talking to Jewish people here. He's talking if you go back to the beginning of the chapter, Jewish people who are at a religious feast, they're probably relatively moral people. But he's saying the, the distinguishing difference here, the thing that makes Jesus call them sons of the devil, is their rejection of him. It's the way they respond to him. It's the fact that when he speaks, their desire is to rise up and kill him. And what Jesus wants to say here is that's nothing new. That response to Christ's claims to think he's a crazy person, <laughs> to want to get a, as far away from him as possible, to want to make him shut up, is the way that Satan has been attacking throughout history. That is his main plan. Verse 44 Jesus says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. And this is what he says. He says, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He says, the devil's identity is that he is a liar and he is the father of lies. That's his objective. That's his plan. It's to lead people away from the truth. Do you remember the, the Garden of Eden? Do you remember the story of, of the fall? What was the first temptation that the, the serpent laid out? He didn't just straight out say, go ahead and eat this. He said, what? Did God actually say? You know, he, he wants people to question the truth of what God has to say. Did God actually say that? Does God really, is he really out for your best? The Jesus Storybook Bible, I bring this up occasionally, but I think it's such a good uh, illustration of this point. In the very first chapter of this kid's Bible that a lot of us have if you have children, um, it describes this story and it says that after Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, it says, a terrible lie came into the world and it would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God 
doesn't love me. That's how that, that children's book describes the fall to kids, that there is a lie that comes into us. So when Jesus says all of us either claim God as our father or, or Satan, he's not talking about angels' wings versus pitchforks, okay? He's not talking about that stuff. He's talking about the truth versus a lie. What is it that you bear in your heart? What is it that controls your behavior? This is the primary lie. This is the lie that rules over all humanity. This is, it's the lie that simply says God's promises aren't true and Jesus is not who he claims to be. That's what Satan came to do, to put that lie in your heart that his promises aren't true and that his son is not who he claims to be. So the proof, the way you can tell if God is your father or if you are a child of the devil, the proof is there. Verse 43 at the very end. It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. The proof is that you can't bear to hear what Jesus has to say. You can't bear to hear the truth. They can't bear to hear what Jesus is saying, even though it's good news. It's news that he's come to redeem them. It's news that he's come as the Messiah, and they can't bear to hear it. Now, maybe that seems strange to you. But if you think about it, it's, it's not so strange to think our lives could be dictated and controlled by lies. I just read a news story this week about a woman uh, who has written a book, um, and she had gone through just the terrible experience as a, a, a young person, I think in middle school, that, that the school started to, to slut shame her. They used to tell her that because she, you know, whatever, was kissing boys or whatever she was doing, that she was a slut. And this reputation kind of spread about her. And then it went down into her, her heart and stayed with her. After she left middle school, as she goes into high school, as she goes into college, this identity that wasn't true became a part of who she was. And it was only later as she's, I think, a PhD student and realizing that that wasn't true, that that's not who she is, that she goes and she writes a book about it to expose this lie. And now she's going touring around New England and, and lots of young women are coming to hear because they too are a victim of this lie. That even though you know, even though they know it's not true, it's hard to believe the truth. It's hard to receive the good news because the bad news is so deeply inside of us. But we weren't just told the lie in middle school. We didn't just hear this bad news at some time when we can remember differently. But scripture tells us that we came into a lie, that we were born into this lie, and the whole world around us is shaped by this lie. The lie that says God is not there. God cannot be known. Or if he is there, he's vengeful and he's angry, and as soon as he sees you, he's going to crush you. That's the lie. So what's the truth? What is the message that the sons of God believe? We've heard the message that the sons of the devil believe. What's the message that the sons of God believe? Well, I think this is a kind of, there's a little bit of humor here in this account, right? As these people are getting into an argument with Jesus, uh, 
they finally come up and approach him. And I just I can't help but imagine there's like some guy in this angry crowd who says, you know, you know, guys, I think I know what's going on here. Just give me a second. Hold on. I'm going to ask Jesus a question. Just let, just let me make sure. Jesus, am I not correct to say that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? <laughs> He's like, I think I know what's going on. This guy is a Samaritan and he has a demon. Let me just suggest that to him. Well, Jesus says, no, <laughs> you are not correct. Here is the truth. Here is the fact. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That is the truth claim of the gospel. And it's an outrageous one. Whoever keeps my word, they will never see death. Jesus' claim is that he is the solution to death. His claim is that he is the path to eternal joy. That he is the way to enjoy that thing we have always been searching for. That he is the, the way to come into a true relationship with our eternal father forever. That he can satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. And it's faith in that truth that distinguishes the sons of the devil from the sons of God. It's faith in that truth that distinguishes the sons of devil from the sons of Abraham. But how can anybody believe that? How can any rational person come to that conclusion? How can any rational person switch from being over here, believing the lie, to moving over here and believing this outrageous truth? This thing that, that seems way too good to be true. Well, this is the third point. There's only one thing that can change us. There's only one hope to change our spiritual fatherhood from, from the devil to God himself. And that is this. We need to see our need, and we need to accept God's provision for it. We need to see our need and accept God's provision for that need. Jesus is making big claims here. There's no way around it. People are getting mad for a reason. He is, is claiming some amazing things. And the first claim he makes is a claim about his character. I don't know if you picked up on it. We've already read it, but it says, well, he goes out to the crowd. This crowd that's angry at him, that's, that's uh, swarming around him. And he says, which one of you convicts me of sin? Which one of you convicts me of sin? That's crazy. <laughs> who on earth would do that? Who could stand up in a crowd of people who are opposed to them, in a crowd of their enemies, and say, who, who can accuse me of any sin? I mean, who can do that in a crowd of their friends? <laughs> right? If I, if I stood up here and said, who can accuse me of any sin, the line would just form, right? With <laughs> Melissa at the head, I'm sure. <laughs> but what happens in this story? right? No one says anything. No one has anything to say. They don't bring a single accusation against him. Because the fact is, Jesus kept the commands of God. And he restates it even, even more forcefully in verse 55. He says, I know God, and I keep his word. He says, I know God, and I keep his word, and no one argues that point. No one argues that he keeps 
the word. Jesus claims here to be sinless. At the same time, he's pointing out the sins of the crowd. Jesus claims to be perfect. At the same time, he's telling the crowd that they're sons of the devil, and they can't argue with him. They've got nothing to say. Well, why does he do that? To rub it in? No. Does he do it to tell them, you need to do better like me? You need to follow the commands like I follow the commands? No. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I follow God, and, and I follow God's word, and you should follow God's word just like I follow it. No, he says something distinctly different. And it's really important to notice how different it is. He says, I keep God's word, and he says, you should keep my word. Verse 51, that line we've already said, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And that makes them pretty ticked off. I don't know if you can imagine this tension here, but I, I just wish we could put ourselves in that scene for a moment, just to, to feel everybody getting angry, you know, under the heat of the sun, kind of brushing up against each other, hearing people mumble and, and complain and, and occasionally shout out some kind of opposition to him, that people are, are really getting agitated here. He says, if anyone keeps my word, they will never see death. And they say, what gives? Abraham died. All the great prophets died. What makes you so great? Who do you think you are? Literally in our passage, it says, who are you making yourself out to be? And Jesus responds, verse 54, he says, I, I don't, I'm not making myself out to be anyone. God has given me all the glory I have. I am not making myself to be anyone. Then he goes even further. He says, I know God and you don't. And Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And the people just lose it. <laughs> they are so agitated. They say, how is that even possible? Right? Verse, verse 57. So you're not even 50 years old yet, and you say you've seen Abraham? How is that even possible? And right here we pick up a theme. And this is a theme that shows up in this book, it shows up in the other Gospels, and it carries throughout the New Testament. It's, it's the question of what does it mean to call Abraham your father? Jesus, again, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He's pushing their buttons, right? He says, you're not Abraham's father, but then he calls them, he says, your father Abraham. He's trying to bring up this distinction that, yes, Abraham is your father, but no, Abraham's not your father. What does that mean? Well, he says, Abraham is not your father because you don't do what Abraham did. What did Abraham do? He believed. That's what Abraham did. If you look in uh, Galatians 3, Paul says it this way. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So do you hear that? It says the gospel was preached to Abraham when God told him, in you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. So then, those who are of faith belong to Abraham, the man of faith. 
Abraham, what did he believe? He believed God's promise that he was going to provide. He believed God's promise that he declared when he went to sacrifice his son Isaac that God would provide a substitute. We see that the people who are the true sons of Abraham are the people who share the faith of Abraham. That's what Jesus has been trying to say the whole time. That's the point he's been making from the very beginning when he makes this distinction between the two kinds of fathers. And it finally reaches a boiling point. They, they get it. They know what he's trying to say, and they're just overwhelmed. But Jesus throws down the gauntlet, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And that's the last straw. They can't take it. They just pick up rocks, and they are going to kill him. And he goes away. But there's a deep irony here. There's a deep irony in their response, because it's that statement. It's that last line that is really the only thing that gives us hope. It's that last claim that makes Jesus unique in all of history. And it's what sets Christianity apart from every other religion, from every other worldview. It's what, for Christians, gives us our only hope. When Jesus says, I am, he uses the divine name of God. We read it in our Old Testament reading, if you heard, from Exodus. It's what the burning bush, it's what God communicated to Moses when he says, go tell the people that I am sent you. Jesus says, I am. It's important. He doesn't say, you need to realize I'm older than Abraham, right? He doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He is saying from Jesus's mouth, the very same words we read in the first chapter of the gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus says, I am God. That's who I am. And no other religion makes that claim. No other major religion will, will have at its center a founder who says, I am the way. Right? Buddha wouldn't claim that. Muhammad certainly wouldn't. But here's why this is so important. Here's why that makes all the difference. Jesus doesn't just offer us a plan. Jesus didn't come to say, behave. He says, verse 55, you haven't known God, but I know him. He says, I know him and I keep his word. The message of the gospel is, if it's up to us to keep God's word, we have no hope. If it's up to us to fulfill the requirements of the law. We can't do it because the truth is we are subject to this lie. We are constantly wrestling with the lie that tells us following God will not satisfy. Following God will not be good for us and we can't do it on our own. Our desires are controlled by sin. We can never hope to earn our way out of the devil's family and into the father's family. We can't. 
We cannot change our spiritual paternity. There's nothing that we can do. There's no steps that we can follow. The only thing that can change us, the only thing that can change our spiritual parenthood is if we realize nothing can change it. <laughs> if we can realize we have a great need, we're hopelessly lost. And you know that. Christians in this room, you know that, right? You've seen that this week. Even those of us who, who love Jesus, who would say, I want to be with Jesus. He is my Savior. We know the struggle. We know what it feels like to be persuaded by those lies of the enemy. The first thing we have to do is see our need. We have to see how hopeless we are. And then secondly, we need to see his provision. Because it's something greater than, than anybody would come up with. It's something greater than anyone could ever imagine. Jesus didn't come and give us a blueprint to follow. He wasn't some teacher that told us how to live. He was God come down to earth. The great I am, the eternal son of God, begotten, not made, very God of very God. And he came to take our place. He came to obey the law in our place. He came to bear the penalty for our law breaking on the cross. He came to pay the penalty we owed by dying in our place. And he rose again. He conquered death. After three days, he rose once and for all. And do you remember? Do you remember how this book starts? Do you remember what John tells us? When the word became flesh, what the word came to do says this. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that's the call to us today. The call this morning is to trust in him to receive him as Savior, to surrender our lives to him as Lord, as God, as the great I am. And look, when you do that, the world's going to think you're crazy. They're going to react the exact same way that they reacted to Jesus in this passage. They're going to think you're nuts. But when you do that, when you come to Jesus as Lord, when you surrender your life to him as king, he welcomes you as a son as a daughter, as his child. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, grateful for the promises you give us in your word. We know that if it was up to us, there's nothing that we could do, that we would have no hope, that we are born into this world as children of the devil. What, what do we do with that? That is... That is so offensive. But not until we realize what you've done to, to free us. Not if we realize what you've done to change that. God, I thank you that you have done everything. That you have stood in my place. And that you've given us your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would call people to yourself in this moment. Those who hear you and, and, and are realizing that, that the way they've been living just 
doesn't cut it. Realizing that they need a Savior, I pray they come. And for those of us this week who have, have messed up, who've, who've, who've gone far from you, I pray, Lord, that we would hear your everlasting promise that you are the one who has done God's work. You've done it in our place, and we're welcome to your table. God, I pray that we could come to you this morning in repentance and faith. In Jesus' name, amen.